and welcome to the next step in our journey through Stock Aiken Waterman. I'm Gavin Scott from chartbeats.com.au and I'm joined as always by Matthew Demby as we get ever closer to the end of 1986. Hi Matt. Hi Gavin, how are you? And hello to all of our listeners right around the world. It's a bit of a bizarre episode, Matt, isn't it? It has to be the most random assortment of Saw singles we've covered yet, right? There's a bit of everything. Yeah, there is. It's a real mixed bag. But this is going to be a great episode because later on we've got the final chapter of the princess story with Saw anyway. Boy, does she have some interesting things to say in this episode, doesn't she, Gavin? Yes, the last bit of the story is a bit of a saga and we'll hear all about that later on. But Matt, what have we got up first? It's an odd one. Yeah, well, before we get to the sublime princess, we have to do a bit of the ridiculous. And I can smell a rat, Gavin. (laughs) Yes, British TV puppet Roland Rat was taking another trip to the novelty record well. In October of 86, he released the single Living Legend. Now, apparently, with the help of our favourite producers, let's have a listen. Tune in to me every night and day. I'm a sexy, hunky brute. I'll chase your blues you away. know that he's a living legend, living legend. That was Living Legend by Roland Rat, and despite bizarrely enough sounding a wee bit like Mel and Kim, which we'll talk about later, this song went straight into the sewer just like a rat, failing to chart at all. Your thoughts, Gavin? I don't know if you remember, Matt, but in episode one of this podcast, I said there were just a couple of Saw singles that I don't own, and one was Andy Paul's Anna Maria Lena. Mm-hmm. This is the other one. <laughs> right. I think that sums up my feelings about this single. Well, I think long-term listeners know that you have a deep hatred of of novelty records. I'm not yep. that much of a fan of them either, but I can recognise a good novelty record when I hear them, even though I was never a buyer. Well, this isn't a good novelty record. It's not funny. It's not memorable. You know, it does strangely enough for a novelty song have a reasonably good backing track. The rap is crap. <laughs> I think, you know, a good novelty song which should have a, like a, a big chorus where the subject of the song, which in this case would be the rat, should be uh, taking control. But here he just takes a bit of a backseat and it's a bit of a nothing, isn't it? It's not great on any level. And I don't know how much is just losing something in translation because obviously here in Australia, we didn't get Roland Rat. He was a furry puppet who did the links between animated series and he was a bit subversive. He was a bit adult. He'd say things that the parents would get and would go straight over the heads of kids. People in the UK love him, don't they? They do. Yeah, I put a call out on Facebook for a bit of feedback from UK people about Roland Rat, their feelings. And there was just a rush of people uh, coming forth to say how much they loved him. They didn't necessarily like the records, but they love Roland Rat. They had good memories about him. Sort of a, an 80s pop culture icon for the British, I think. Now, this song, Living Legend, was the theme to Roland Rat the series, and Roland had been snapped up by the BBC at this point. He was previously on TV AM, and they needed a new theme song, and so they went to Saw, and Saw produced this single. Well, that's what the credits say, right? But uh, when I spoke to Mike Stock, I asked him about this record and here's what he had to say let's go to roland rat <laughs> cool, <man. laughs> how did you feel doing a novelty record like that i mean because obviously you did other novelty records later on but that i feel like was the first i assume that was pete it was pete and although it bears the legend stock and water and producer i never got anywhere near it <laughs> 
I don't even remember being in the studio. I never met the guy and I never made the records, but it's got our name on it because that was a selling point at the time. Yeah, right. Aside from the character stuff, the rest of the track is quite a cool Mel and Kim type housey tune. If you take Roland Red off, it's quite a good record. Well, I think that that's what they wanted. I think I think Matt got involved in there and just putting the backing track t- together. We wouldn't be searching for breaking new ground with with, with him. So uh, yeah, you drew a line in the sand. Well, do we have to talk about it? We have to cover it because we're doing every singles. Okay. That's plenty. We're not going to dwell on it either. <laughs> Mike Stock could not get out of that conversation quick enough, could he? <laughs> no, no. A lot of people seem to have uh, collective amnesia about this record. We had a lot of trouble uh, trying to get any kind of information about how it was made. I got in touch with Phil Harding because he's down as having mixed this track. Phil had no memory of working on it whatsoever. He put me onto his book editor, a guy called John Palmer. He determined that what had happened was there were all these backing tracks kind of knocked together as potential singles probably for Mel and Kim or Austin Howard or you know any number of other artists who were working at PWL at that point and so when the people behind Roland Rat needed a song they grabbed one of these backing tracks and said here you go put your puppet on top of it (laughs) and hey presto there was the single right that kind of makes sense to me yeah and especially since uh the lyrics were put together by uh, someone at the bbc and the guy who was actually the voice behind roland rat and that's probably why no one sort of feels any sense of ownership over this record yeah and john was saying that possibly when the time came to record roland's input they might have just had an engineer in the studio with him recording the vocal because the work on the backing track had been done. And so maybe that's why Mike says he wasn't involved because maybe he wasn't actually involved in the Roland site. And maybe that's why Phil doesn't remember it because when he worked on it, it was just a backing track with D. Lewis singing. Now, I don't know for sure that it's D. Lewis singing the female part, but it certainly sounds like her, doesn't it? Well, I think a lot of people were surprised that this record went absolutely nowhere, not only because Roland Rat was a big pop cultural icon at the time, but it also had a bit of uh, experience on the charts in the UK. It had two top 40 hits, uh, the biggest being Rat Rapping, which reached number 14 in 1983. And he also had another song called Love Me Tender, which hit 32 in 84. Now, I think Rat Rapping is probably more of a successful uh, novelty record. Should we have to listen to that, Gavin? Uh, do we have to? Yes. And stretch. So Rat Rapping, which for me is a massive ripoff of Malcolm McLaren. (laughs) It sounds like Buffalo Girls. Well, how ironic, because I think Malcolm will probably be the first to admit that he was the king of ripoffs and I loved him, but that's what he was. So there we go. Now, like Mike Stock, can I say, do we have to talk about this anymore? I think that I'm very happy to see the backside of Roland Rat. Okay. Now from a single that probably sounded like a very good idea on paper, we move now to a song that probably didn't really have much chance of success despite being quite good it's the second single by jeb million speed up my heartbeat here it is
the follow-up to Second Time Around, that would speed up my heartbeat by Jeb Million, released in October 1986, unfortunately didn't chart at all in the UK, despite, in my opinion, being a much better song than the second time around. What do you think of this one, Matt? Yeah, another good song from Jeb. I disagree with you, though. I think uh, the second time around was the better track, but this is a good one, very much sort of in the vein of that mid-tempo kind of mid-80s uh, pop rock, very sort of similar to the kind of Nick Kershaw's of the world. Now, this actually reminds me a wee bit of Wouldn't It Be Good? Not a rip-off or anything like that, but sort of very much in that same vein. For me, this actually has a bit more of a North American feel to it. It reminds me a lot of the kind of stuff Corey Hart was doing around this time. And even though he was British, John Waite, who spent a lot of time in America, he went on to be in Bad English, but around this time he was popping up in TV shows and had the solo hit Missing You a couple of years earlier. That's what this reminds me of, that kind of really radio-friendly, pop rock, appealing to the masses. So I don't know what kind of promotion Jeb got. I don't know what kind of profile he had or didn't have. But to me, this sounds like it would have sounded good on radio had a big label behind it jeb was on wea so for it to not even get in the top 100 i don't know what was going on there yeah i never saw him in any of the british pop mags i was reading no no articles no advertisements there doesn't seem to have been a video for this uh much like the first single there was no video and evidence for that for that either so it doesn't appear that the label was putting a lot into getting this record out and about perhaps it wasn't picking up enough steam with radio and they just decide to let these songs die i don't know it's a bit of a mystery, but it wasn't the end of Jeb Million, was it? Because he went on to make more music. Yeah, he did. He went through a bit of a rebrand, still on WEA, but he started putting records out as Radio Earth, and he put a couple of singles out in 1987, which, to be honest, Matt, until you sent me a link to one of them the other day, I had never, ever listened to. But shall we listen to one of them now? It's called Distant Land, Badu Bomb Bomb, in brackets. Let's hear that now. Yeah, that was Distant Land uh, by the artist formerly known as Jeb Million. Yeah, so it sounds a bit kind of Simple Minds-ish, so very much uh, up with what was happening in pop at the time, but it didn't really do that kind of uh, don't you forget about me slam dunk, did it? No, for me, it sounds like a song in search of a chorus. It sounds like it's building, it's building, it's going to get there, and it just never quite gets anywhere. Uh, I kind of like it. I like the sound of it, even though it it wasn't with Saw or anything like that. I I feel like he still had good producers working with him. But yeah, it never quite got to that real peak of, wow, what a great song. But uh, yeah, points for trying. Well, it's good that Jeb did get a few bites at the cherry because he was obviously a very creative guy. He did go on to uh, continue to work in creative fields. We know he was uh, in music behind the scenes in various places, working on jingles at some point. Apparently he also went on to who are working animation in LA as well. And as I think we mentioned in the second time around episode, he sadly passed away in 2013, aged 59 from a heart attack. Unfortunately for Jeb, his music dreams never quite came to fruition. Next up, we have a singer who had tasted success, but that was about to become a memory. Matt, who is it? Yeah, it's a bit of a sad moment for me. This is the fifth and final single from Princess's self-titled debut album and the final record she ever did with Saw. Princess released In the Heat of a Passionate Moment in October of 86. Let's have a listen. Maybe I'm a fool. Maybe I'm a thief. 
Yes, that was In the Heat of a Passionate Moment by Princess, which despite being a bloody good record, reached a disappointing number 74 in the UK. Shocking. Yeah. Over in the US, it made number 30 on the dance chart. It was the only one of her source singles not to make the top 40, so it's a kind of a sad exit after her early chart success with Saw. What did you think of this song, Gavin? I really like this. Now, regular listeners will know that I was a bit lukewarm on Tell Me Tomorrow and I'll Keep On Loving You. I said in both those cases, I didn't feel like the chorus lived up to the promise of the verses. That wasn't the case here. I love In the Heat of a Passionate Moment. I love all the do, 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 say, say, say stuff. But then when it gets to the chorus, it's actually still really exciting. It's a good, catchy song. It's got a bit more of a kick to it than anything she'd done before. I feel like had it been released as third single or even fourth single, it possibly could have done quite well, but it would have had to have had a video, which it didn't have. And what were they thinking with the single cover? in the UK. Not even a picture of Princess on it, just a black single cover with in type her name and the song title. They really couldn't be asked promoting this, <laughs> could they? Well, I don't really know what happened because there was very, very little of Princess in any of the pop mags at the time. There were some ads for the single, but not much promo that I was aware of. And as you say, no video. Unfortunately, it appears that whatever was going on between Princess and Supreme, which uh, we touched on in the last episode where things were really going south, you've got to suspect that had something to do with the fact that this was a bit of a an undercooked release. Someone somewhere was not pushing this. We don't really know exactly who or why, but it was a bit of a muted last release and unfortunately it just didn't go anywhere. Well, that's right. I mean, even Germany put a picture of Princess on the single cover for the seven-inch release over there. One thing Supreme did do uh, and saw, of course, was they did some alternate mixes for this track. Shall we listen to the single remix? Let's hear it. Okay, here it is. So the seven inch version of In the Heat of a Passionate Moment was pretty much just like an edit of the album version. That one you just heard gave it a bit more of a supercharge. I, I like both of them, depending on the mood I'm in. Do you have a preference, Matt? I love all of them. It's just a fantastic song. It really grabbed me the first time I ever heard it. And unusually sexual for a sore song, don't you think? Very sort of steamy. You know, so many times their songs are about love and not about what goes on between the sheets. <laughs> a few obvious exceptions are noted, but this one, very steamy. Yes. Now, things got a little bit heated in another way, and that concerned the mixes as well. It's time to hear from Princess, and when we interviewed her all those many months ago, I asked her about the remixes for this song and what she thought of them. So let's hear what she has to say about that. What I'd first been given as a rendition of it, and that inspired the vocal that I gave, I loved that single. I loved the melody, loved what it was saying and was able to represent that. What was going to be its first mix, I wasn't as thrilled about. I was like, can't we go to that after then? Can we not go with what galvanized the vocal and the vibe that we've got? Why are we departing immediately to something that we can present almost immediately afterwards, but why don't we lead with what we knew we wanted to lead with? And that was the way I felt about that. I loved the song. And um, and that was perhaps where you could feel that the parting of the ways that had already begun was, was truly happening. 
in terms of the mixes, can you be a little bit more specific about what you did like and what, and what you didn't like? I literally relinquished my connection to the, the track in many ways and did not get to hear every mix to this day. Once it started to be contentious when you showed that you felt connected to the music that you were part of creating. And when you say, well, couldn't we this and couldn't we that? And suddenly that's a problem. Yet you are part of the creative process anyway. Why is it okay when we're creating it, but then when we're finished and we're looking at how it's presented, which I'm also a part of, why is that suddenly cause for argument or contention? Can't we meet, reach middle ground like we did before then? What's up? And so then if we can't work somewhat in a climate that we started with, at least at its core and at its essence, then we're not working at all. That's not that's not our foundation. Were you not a fan of the dancier direction it took? Not always. Not always. It depended. It, again, it depended on the treatment of it. Because even categorising the music for me is a trap. Do I feel it? Do I like it? And I think the one that, that was called High Energy, for instance, it, it seemed to me somewhat soulless. It took away some of the warmth that was inherent in so-called even dance tracks. And so I wasn't a fan of so-called whatever it was, high energy. It wasn't my thing. You can even say, well, I'll tell you why we're going to lead with whatever. We can have a discussion, but you can act as if I have no say. I can't speak. Then, then now, I'm, now I'm bored. <laughs> Which I guess leads us into the parting of the ways. Was there a sense that that working relationship was done by then? <laughs> I'm never a done person in that way. Do you know what I mean? We can't have started something and suddenly we're just done. We could, it could always be reignited depending on what we've learned, what we feel now. But I, didn't, I couldn't feel the love, put it that way. And if I couldn't feel the love anymore, <laughs> then I, can't, I don't work like that. You know, I worked in, in where we would need a cup of tea and I, yes, princess, would go and make tea. For everybody, because I'd say to them, you lot don't necessarily wash the cups as clean as I want them. So I'll make the tea. You know, this that was the kind of environment I helped to encourage. We helped to encourage, contrary to what people might believe. So if we're not working from that space where I, I can tease you about the cups and feel comfortable serving you, then now we've lost the plot. Are you able to put your finger on why things kind of went that way? Was it just that production trio were getting too busy? Or I, I don't know, do, are you able to reflect on that and think, well, this is why that might have happened? Or is it just sometimes things happen and there's no real reason? I think there's always a reason. I think Don would be even better suited to sort of polarise that because you're dealing with also the business aspects that are going on behind the creative expression. His input in terms of what he could feel and what was happening as a climate anyway is invaluable. I'm speaking as an artist already just in terms of just one suggestion regarding the creative process. So if I may, Gavin, this is not just an artist I was working with. This was my younger sister. I don't know about anybody else's culture, but in my culture, we take care of our women folk. We make sure that they're safe and protected. To others who did not have that kind of perception, they saw that as overprotective, et cetera, et cetera. That was of no importance to me what other people thought. And the environment within which we had helped to foster at the vineyard was now being offered to others. And one was being treated like the country cousin that came to say, 
that didn't know how the facilities are supposed to work, which was extremely insulting to one's intelligence. So what was happening behind the scenes was that what was offered to us as contracts, etc., were not in keeping with what had been achieved. So I had to make certain decisions. We had to make certain decisions. It, we weren't happy to go. We loved Pete. I would go as far as saying that. Other elements within the production team, um, again, less said about that. However, what was most important was to make sure that the artist felt that she was in a working environment that she enjoyed. More importantly, one that she could express herself and develop now as an artist, not just as someone's perception of who she's supposed to be. Because someone within that team once said that she's just a voice. And let me address that. The voice is encased within a human entity with feelings, psychological impacts on life, socioeconomic elements that are affecting that person, the psychological patterns that are created within relationships, all wrapped up in a voice that must now express something that you as a punter is going to listen to and say, oh, I love that. I love that. And that element is not fully given its true value. And these were the things that were affecting what we were looking at, because were we the usual artists, it would have been fine, but we weren't. We never were that. I don't know what it's the usual artist. You know what I'm saying? What we were, were two people who came in and I spoke with Pete, who is the head of the house. And other people were having opinions and what should occur. And maybe they got busy. I don't know. But how one was treated as the foundation of this new wing of the house was not something that I felt it would work for us. And Princess, from the artist point of view, were you feeling that as well? As soon as it starts to feel less than comfortable, I'm already halfway out the door. I'm gone. First sign. I don't want to be there. Because it's not fun anymore. It's not fun anymore. And life should be, at its core, something that you enjoy. You can feel some sort of goodness about it. When you open your eyes, you're not in dread. You might, you might have things flooding that say, oh, yeah, I've got to deal with this. I've got to deal with that after. But your first waking aspect should be that you're glad that it happened. Glad that you turned up again. And if you're in any situation that is taking that or helping to impinge on that in any way, then... In, in, in a less than positive way, then yes, you must, you must extricate yourself. Get out. Matt, there is so much to unpack there, isn't there? There is, there is. Uh, I'm really flabbergasted. It's as a Princess fan to hear that kind of insight into Princess and her brother manager Don's perspective on the decline of their relationship with Saul. It's quite powerful. So much has been said about Don's influence on Princess's career. A lot of people have had their opinions, but certainly from his perspective, he felt that he was doing what was best for her. They obviously both felt that they weren't in a very happy position anymore. Certainly for an artist like Princess, who was so invested in her own sound to want to sort of check out of the process with this single she must have felt quite dejected she was quite involved early on think back to our Sayomi number one episode she added a lot to that song herself and so I guess by this stage of things when she's kind of being shut out according to her of the creative process beyond coming in and singing the song that she's given must have been quite frustrating to have gone on from having what she felt was a degree of control and input to what it sounds like being said, 
just stand there and sing. You're just the voice. Right. That's pretty full on. I think two things are going on here. One, you have the general decline in the performance of the singles, Tell Me Tomorrow, which I actually loved, just barely scraped into the top 40, which isn't a satisfactory outcome for anyone. And then you have the rise of the sort of the Mel and Kim style, uh, housier, heavier sort of dance sounds that were coming back into vogue for Saw. They were sort of moving away from the soul stuff into sort of housier dance stuff. Those two forces probably played a strong role in the fact that there was being a reassessment made at PWL and Supreme about where Princess should go. Obviously, Princess and Don didn't really feel like they wanted to go in the way that they were being taken or they or they just weren't consulted enough to their liking. And it's created this schism, hasn't it? Yeah, it has. And, you know, you read the other reports of this relationship. And yes, as you said, Don does cop a lot of the blame. He admitted it himself. People consider him to be overprotective or to have been asking for things way beyond what Princess should have been getting. He obviously didn't see it that way. And I guess, you know, that's what managers do. Managers get in there and fight for their clients. And in this case, being his sister, he would have fought all that harder. It is nice to hear the different perspective. It was a relationship that I guess had just run out of time. Yeah, that's right. And sort of looming in the background and not mentioned at any point, I think, is the shadow of Melon Kim, who'd come in into Supreme Records and out of nowhere were the biggest looming superstars in British pop. And I think even if Princess had continued to have top 10 hits, probably Supreme would still be uh, putting a lot of their resources into Mel and Kim because they were just obviously going to be the next big thing. And that would have shaken up relationships, wouldn't it? Yeah. I mean, I think reading between the lines, the comment about feeling like being the country cousins, I think that was clearly a reference to Mel and Kim being flavour of the month at Supreme. So I guess if Don and Princess were resistant to the dancier, housier sound, it might have been, well, that train's going, so you're either on or you're off. And as it turns out, they were off and moved on to a new deal at Polydor Records. And the industry gossip at the time was that they actually got offered a really, really substantial advance. And if you're in a situation where you're not happy where you are and you got offered a big old advance, it's going to be quite a strong person who's going to say no to that, isn't it? But obviously they felt it was time to move on. They hopped over to Polydor. Uh, Apparently Polydor promised them a lot of things. Now, did Polydor deliver? Well, the first fruit of their relationship with Polydor was the single Red Hot. Let's give it a listen. That was Red Hot by Princess. I remember when this came out, it got quite a bit of exposure in the UK press. Unfortunately, it just wasn't that much of a hit, was it, Gavin? No, it didn't make the top 40 over there. Was it 58? Yeah, it made it to 58, which a lot of people at the time found quite shocking because it is a good record. I actually really enjoy it. I think it's a lot of fun. It's not a sore record by any measure. It's very influenced by uh, what was going on in America. It's got that screaming saxophone sound and the lyrics are really, really sexual. I don't think you could ever imagine a, a sore song with lyrics like, do you like boys or do you like girls and uh, things you hate about yourself do for me. <laughs> and I'm tough, baby. Women get that way because they never get enough. It's not very sore, is it, Gavin? I guess the closest sore came to that was all of me, boy, oh boy, right? <laughs> Red Hot was followed by I Cannot Carry On, which got 
to number 92 in the UK. So things weren't looking great for this new deal with Polydor. Let's hear from Princess and Don about their post-Supreme experience. What is your feeling about any of those tracks? I'm surprised they didn't do better. My feeling as, as a music consumer is why weren't some of these singles bigger hits? All right, so before I speak on that further, go on, Don. I tend to want to um, address the political climate more so than Princess because I, I'll take the heat for it. <laughs> we had, as far as people were concerned, the story was being given that we walked away from Pete Waterman and we were ungrateful. And that's not really what occurred. More specifically, there was there were other people that got involved with ensuring that a rift occurred between Pete and ourselves. And the part of it for me that was a little bit sad was that Pete didn't reach out to me to check for himself, given how we started. But what occurred, why these singles did not do as well, was that environment within the business that was in opposition to us, which ended up us hearing that we were about to be blacklisted. And that tells you the rest of the story in terms of what happened thereafter, why you didn't hear of princess much anymore. Do you think it's fair for any industry, any one person, anybody at all, to stop you from earning a living at the choice that you make? Do you think that is fair? No. Thank you. So imagine when it's happening to you and your loved one. I will say this to you, what princess has suffered through all of this, only I have seen, no one else. And the fact that she's here today still putting music out is a testament to uh, what we call an indomitable spirit because they've tried to break us and we have refused to allow that to be the case. What they did in essence was not to allow Princess to earn a living off the music that everybody else was earning a living off. And that's what I call racism. Because it's not about the fact that you don't like me because I'm black, Gavin. It's because you have the ability to stop me from earning a living based on who I am to be. And that's the true essence of what we experienced in an industry that really, really can only exist because the people who come forward have talent. Just when you thought it couldn't get any more full on, there we go. Princess blacklisted by the British music industry because of the perception that she and Don had been ungrateful in walking away from Supreme and PWL. Pretty harsh. It's impossible as an outsider from the music industry to even get your head around how something like that could happen. Obviously, Don really feels strongly that that was what happened. Certainly, I can believe that there would be some third parties in the industry who perhaps might feel that they have the God-given right to say, no, this record should not be played because I, I've heard about you and I don't like you or so on and so forth. There are people in the world like that, unfortunately. Whether there was a concern effort by people to make sure that Princess was never allowed to have another hit again. I don't know. It's impossible to know. But all I can say as a fan who deeply, deeply loved 
her records. It's incredibly sad to me that she never had another major hit again, despite having a brilliant voice and putting out some incredibly good records. Some incredibly good records like Lover Don't Go, which came out in 1989. So by this point, uh, the Polydor deal was done and Don and Princess had struck out on their own, putting out the single under their own steam, independently funding it themselves. And, you know, this track was right on trend. It has a bit of an Adiva, Kim Mazel sound, really tapping into that late 80s house sound. Let's have a listen to Lover Don't Go. Matt, were you a fan of that one? I am a fan of it. Now, interesting story. I never heard that record until decades after it came out, until the advent of the internet and it appeared on YouTube. Because even though I adored Princess, I never heard this record at the time because I never even knew it existed. There was no mention of it in any of the media that I consumed. It certainly didn't get played here in Australia. So unfortunately, despite being a fantastic record, it just didn't get heard. And I think it's a real shame. I don't know what the background story is, whether... uh, major labels refused to release this or if Princess and Don just chose they wanted to release it themselves independently but either way the outcome was the same it just didn't get heard by enough people because there is nothing wrong with this record had this had the right kind of push had this had the right kind of exposure it would have easily gone into the top 20 it should have gone into the top 10 the chart position it got is a crime well that's right it didn't make the top 100 in the UK let's hear from Don first and then Princess about this situation situation. One of the first things that happened after Polydor was the Touchstone Records situation that and we did this song called Lover Don't Go and we think that was an amazing song. Now this song got to 108 in the charts. Once it broke into the top 100, they would have to give us full national radio as well as TV. On the Tuesday, the track is 108. The charts has come out on the Thursday and we see nothing. We hear Later on, it dropped to 365, told us that they made an error with the barcode and gave our sales to some other record. Killed our record, we had mortgaged our house, we had spent the money on the video, we did everything we were about to recoup. And that was would have been a descent into absolute poverty. Lost everything, mm-hmm. everything, home, car, you name it. And when you're faced with that in your lifetime and you have to start over, where do you do it? And not just that, it's, 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 it's devastating outside of the public eye. Oh my gosh. Yeah, it's, de- it's devastating for any person, but to do it knowing that you can be seen doing it at any given moment and having to feel that is... <laughs> it's not something I wish on anyone, really. And the reason why one brings it up, it's important to note that people could think that, oh, your music was not successful or you didn't do well. But when strings are being orchestrated to ensure that you don't do well, that is where, for me, the injustice and the aspect of all of this that is unnecessary. It's unnecessary. It, it was never a move that ever had to take place. I guess by the end of the 80s, it must have just been like enough is enough. (laughs) Yeah, there was an element of that. 
although interestingly enough, we carried on making music, we carried on writing. There's so much that's packed into the experience of life as an artist who has chosen to be as true as they can be to themselves and their, whatever they call their principles, the things that they find anchor them. That's a, that's a feat in a, in a business that's all about doing as you're told at a certain point because this is what it's going to do for your career. So, yes, as Princess said, she and, and Don, because they are still releasing records together, have continued to work on music and release music. There was a big break there, but they did put some stuff out in the last decade, didn't they, Matt? Yeah, that's right. Uh, they kept working. And I think Princess was alluding there to what do you do, uh, you know, after the roadblocks that they hit in the UK. Some of you may know they they moved to New York. Uh, they continued to work in music. Princess did a lot of uh, session work. She most famously did backing vocals on Vanilla Ice's album, To The Extreme. A lot of people noticed that on the liner notes, those who will admit to owning a Vanilla Ice record, not <laughs> me. Yeah, so she still continued to work, make a, a living in the industry, has recently come back and started recording again on on some new music, which is really exciting. I'm glad that she's still getting uh, the pleasure and joy out of music, even though uh, she and Don had such a difficult time in the industry in the 80s. And you know what? After everything, we still have that brilliant self-titled album, all those great singles, some post-PWL stuff that is also really fantastic. So, you know, as legacies go, it's nothing to turn your nose up at. Now, speaking of music legacies, our next artist has a pretty impressive one, and he's still performing at the age of 78. His career dates all the way back to the mid-1960s. It's Georgie Fame and his single, Samba. Samba by Georgie Fame, which slipped into the UK chart in November 1986, getting to number 81. So not a hit, but, you know, for for a track like that to chart at all, when songs like Speed Up My Heartbeat and Living Legend didn't, is actually kind of impressive. Now, Georgie Fame's career dated right back to the mid-60s. As I said, he had three UK number ones, one of which was the original version of Yeah Yeah, which Matt Bianco had turned into a hit again in 1985. So I guess Georgie Fame was back on people's radar. He was certainly on Saw's radar. He had already appeared on the Mondo Kane single, New York Afternoon, as a guest vocalist. And here he was getting star billing with this track, Samba. I still can't believe Saw did these tracks, these Latin Brazilian tracks. It's so out of step with everything that they were doing. What do you think of this one, Matt? I love it. I think it's really good. I could imagine uh, sitting on the patio in uh, Brazil uh, with a mocktail in hand, listening to this one by the pool, perhaps. You know, as you mentioned, it's a part of that uh, Sophistapop trilogy they did. I think it's uh, quite a good cover. It's a cover of a classic by Brazilian artist, Gilberto Gil's Toda Manina Baiana. Look, I'm, I, I apologise to anyone who speaks Brazilian Portuguese <laughs> if I've made a complete hash of that. You can blame my friend Michael. He's a bit of a Brazilophile. You know, I couldn't imagine this being a hit if New York Afternoon wasn't a hit because that is such, a, you know, on the money sort of uh, crossover pop potential, whereas this is a little more 
more subdued. So kind of interesting that they decided to proceed with this uh, after the first single didn't fly. But I saw a little piece on this single in Record Mirror. One of our dedicated listeners, Angus, in the UK sent me this clip from Record Mirror, where uh, they noted that this single was, quote, created specifically for the Barry Island Weekender, which was a big deal going on at the time where this kind of music was uh, played. And they, they perhaps felt, the A&R guys perhaps felt that, you know, the wave of popularity that was coming out of that was going to sweep this up the charts. It didn't happen, but, you know, as the record review noted, irresistibly infectious and it really bubbles and leaps along. I like it. I think it's good. Yeah, I wonder if this was done before or after New York Afternoon. I'd, I'd like to know the order of, of how things were done because, as we discussed with um, Mondo Kane, that came out on Lisson Records. Samba came out on Ensign. The label to which Phil Fearon was also signed. So, obviously, there was a relationship going on between Saw and Ensign and also Saw and Lisson. I wonder who got in first with the idea of, of Georgie or whether Saw were already work, working with Georgie and they said, oh, let's sticking on New York Afternoon as well. Haven't gotten to the bottom of that one. One thing we haven't mentioned because I refuse to try and pronounce the name of the original song is that the track actually was subtitled, or I'll, give, I'll give it a go, Toda Manina Bayana. So it was Samba in brackets, Toda Manina Bayana. And it had new English lyrics written by Georgie himself. Shall we hear a little bit of the original, Matt? Yeah, let's play it. It's so good. Okay, that was... Okay, Matt, you're going to have to say it. Todo manina bayana. Say it, not <laughs> sing it. And who's it by again? Gilberto Gilles. So, so soothing. Another thing we should mention about this song is that it was one of the first tracks mixed by a new name at PWL, but a name that most Saw fans, if not all Saw fans, will know, Mr. Pete Hammond. He had come to PWL in 1986, and he wasn't sure, and, and yes, we have spoken to Pete, he wasn't sure if Samba was the first track he worked on, but he knew, he knows it was very early on in the work he did at PWL. He name-checked Terry by Mandy as another one which might have been the first track he worked on there. But uh, yeah, we spoke to Pete and asked him about coming to PWL and why Saw were maybe working on songs like Samba. So here is Pete. How did you find yourself working at PWL? Because you'd been in the industry for quite a while by then. I bought my own studio in 1982, the workhouse in the Old Kent Road, which I shared with uh, Manfred Mann. And we were partners. And I started doing quite well. The first record I did, they went to number one, which was Past the Duchy, the musical youth thing. There I was, and I was very busy down there doing lots of stuff. We did Paul Young's Wherever I Lay My Hat and the album, No Parley. And then Waterman kept ringing me the summer of 86, I think it was. Can you come and mix? Because a lot of people have tried to mix their stuff and gone away as nervous wrecks. One of the tape ops down there, he was doing some mixing, and he ended up having a nervous breakdown because of the way they treated him. You know, And Phil was sort of... Re- doing his own thing, Phil Harding. He'd been mixing for them in Marquee before they had PWL. And Waterman said to me, um, can you can't? I said, no, I'm too busy, mate. I'm sorry. Anyhow, eventually I went a bit quiet in about the October, November, and I phoned him up and said, look, if you need any mixing done, give us, give us a ring. And he said, get down here quick and mix yourself a hit. And that's the title of my book, actually, which is uh, available on Amazon. And so I, I did. I went down and I, and I did a bit of mixing. And then it went very quiet and Christmas was coming and I heard nothing. And I thought, oh, I'm, I'm not fitting in down there. I didn't feel I was really fitting in with everybody. You know, it's Mike and Matt and that. And it just went really quiet. I heard nothing for ages. And then just before Christmas, I, I got a phone call 
from Waterman or somebody in Waterman's office and said, you've been invited to the Christmas party. And so I said, oh, that's weird, because I thought I was a bit of an outcast and they didn't want, my, want me down there anymore. So yeah, I went to the Christmas party and um, took my wife along and everything. And at the end of the party, Waterman says, said, well, are you ready? You've got 35 tracks to mix. <laughs> And and that was how we started off, really, just after the Christmas of uh, 86. And one of the first things I did was the Pepsi and Shirley record. It wasn't the first. So I did some stuff with Phil Fearon and um, the Southern House Party we did. And um, oh, I can't remember her name now. The Bald Lady, Carol Hitchcock. And I did a bit with Georgie Fame as well. I, I don't really know why they were working with Georgie Fame, to be honest, because they were doing things like Dead or Alive and before that and high energy things. And suddenly it was a, just something different to do, I think. He was more or less taking what he could get at the time, I think, because he needed money to sustain the new studios that he built. You know, he borrowed quite heavily to to buy the or rent the property and buy all the equipment. And he was buying lots of equipment. So I think he had to take other work in as well as the their own projects. So that's all I can, the only thing I can think of, really, I don't think there's any deliberate aim to go that Mondo Kane, Georgie Fame way. Mr. Pete Hammond there, and we will be hearing a lot more from Pete in future episodes. We spoke to him about all sorts of interesting sore tracks. But uh, yeah, just a little snippet there with him explaining, I guess, the rationale for sore taking on these jobs. They needed the money. Pete Waterman had been going around town, splashing the cash around on every sequencer, sampler, and Lindrum and Calric Soundfield microphone that he could get his hands on. He had to pay for them somehow. And so record labels like Ensign, Georgie Fame, and WEA, Jeb Million, they were the ones paying for basically fitting PWL out with all their gear. Yeah, and aren't we glad that they did? It was a business they were running, and I'd much rather they made records like Samba rather than Roland Rat. Despite the fact that this single didn't do anything. It's just proof of Saw's versatility as producers. It's so competently done. It's such a good record. Ironically, people say all their records sound the same, but it was the public that chose their trademark sound. Doesn't mean they couldn't do other things, and Samba is proof of that. Now, next episode, we will hear the last few singles from 1986, as well as the very first single from 1987, which I know Matt is going to be very excited about. But next episode really feels like a season finale in a lot of ways. We're going to hear about what happened with Phil Fearon and Brilliant and D. Lewis, how their careers panned out with Saw and beyond Saw. And there's some really interesting stories coming up. So it's, again, you know, the singles may not be the biggest hits in the Saw catalogue, but the stories behind them are really fascinating. And that's what I'm finding, Matt, with this podcast, is sometimes it's not hearing how I should be so lucky with recorded for the 20th time. It's hearing these little-known stories I've got some good stories coming up in uh, the bonus material for this episode, don't we, Gavin? Yes, we do. We are going to hear a little bit more from Princess about life after the 80s. And yeah, you're going to hear which of the 1984, 85 and 86 singles that we've discussed so far were undeserving flops. So if you want to listen to the bonus material, head to chartbeats.com.au slash saw to subscribe for $2 a month and gain access to all that bonus material or an annual subscription is only $20. And we are clearly going to be going for years, aren't we, Matt? Years and years and years. So much to talk about. If you're enjoying these podcasts, make sure that you do give us a review or a star rating on Apple Podcasts because that helps other people find this podcast and keeps them coming. That's right. So that's it for now. See you on the bonus material, subscribers, and see you in a fortnight for the end of 1986. Bye. See everybody. Bye.